Well, it's going to be a hell of a week. We're staring down a Republican debate, an impeachment hearing, and a government shutdown. Is every Monday night like this? Just asking for a friend. With the House on fire and shutdown rapidly approaching, something tells me Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi has a few things to get off her chest. The Speaker Emeritus is here on set, and she is coming up first. Plus, ahead of a judge's ruling on a gag order, Donald Trump unleashes more dangerous threats on social media. Oh, and he might have committed a felony today in South Carolina. Andrew Weissman is standing by with his reaction. Also tonight, we are counting down to the first live interview with the star witness of the January 6th committee. Rachel Maddow joins me to preview her conversation with Cassidy Hutchinson. And later, as the president and his predecessor prepare for back-to-back visits to Michigan, a reminder tonight that one of them has a long history of broken promises to the same people he's trying to pitch. Remember when the government shut down in 2013? I sure do. My first guest definitely does. But in case you don't, let me refresh your memory. Basically, Republicans like Mike Lee and Ted Cruz, a bunch of other ones, were angry about providing health care to more people. And they were so intent on defunding Obamacare that they shut the government down. At that time, I was working in the Obama administration, and I thought we were dealing with the most unreasonable, obstructionist, bad bad faith actors that I would ever encounter in my career in Washington. But I got to say, this fight right now about whether or not to fund the government has made 2013 seem kind of like the good old days, because at least that 2013 shutdown was about something. It was a ridiculous policy disagreement, and Mike Lee and Ted Cruz were definitely wrong, that at least it was a policy disagreement. They hated Obamacare, and they wanted to end it. But today, the most powerful members of this House Republican Congress, who are determining the agenda of that conference, don't have any agenda at all. They literally can't articulate what this is all about, because their agenda is to cease the role of government altogether. Their agenda is to burn it all down, That is the entire guiding principle of the most powerful wing of this caucus. And that doesn't seem to be registering for Kevin McCarthy, who had this to say earlier today. Well, you have to keep the government open. I mean, if people want to close the government, it only makes them weaker. Why would they want to stop paying the troops or stop paying the border agents or the Coast Guard? I don't understand how that makes you stronger. I don't understand what point you're trying to make. Doesn't it kind of sound like he's an observer, a spectator, not the Speaker of the House, the person third in line to the presidency? My first guest tonight refers to him as, quote, the incredibly shrinking speaker. It's pretty apt because he has no control and doesn't seem to know how to assert it. The most powerful members in the caucus are taking their cues not from him, but from Mar-a-Lago, and they aren't even hiding it. As Donald Trump posted last night, quote, unless you get everything, shut it down, all in caps, of course, to be dramatic. And that seems to be exactly what they plan to do. Let's be honest. This was all kind of predictable, despite their brief flirtation when they were on the campaign trail with pretending to want to govern on issues like addressing inflation and lowering gas prices. Their blow-it-all-up agenda has been their guiding principle in the majority. Just consider a few of their crowning achievements over the last few months. They spent countless, I'm talking countless hours, on meaningless resolutions intended to punish their political enemies, like, say, censuring Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff. What a good use of time. They have been trying to retaliate against federal law enforcement for daring to hold Donald Trump accountable, threatening to defund the Justice Department and the FBI. 
And then earlier this month, when Congress came back from their long summer recess with time running out to fund the government, the very first thing Kevin McCarthy did, under pressure of his right flank, was launch a bogus impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden without a purpose. Because his conference members told him to. Because Donald Trump told them to. See the connections here? But what exactly they want to impeach the president for is really anyone's guess at this point. Now, here we are, just five days from the government shutting down, which will have a huge impact on people across the country. And what's on their agenda this week? Well, they are making time in their schedule to hold their first impeachment hearing just two days before government funds run out. Oversight Committee Chair James Comer made it official in just a few, just a few hours ago with a witness list and everything. His committee says Republicans are going to finally do what they have tried and failed to accomplish over the past eight months that they've been looking into this. Quote, present evidence regarding President Joe Biden's knowledge of and role in his family's domestic and international business practices. Sounds a lot like what we've been hearing for months. Look, whether McCarthy wants to go along with all of this or not, this impeachment charade and a government shutdown, he doesn't really have a choice because without the nihilist wing of his party, he won't be speaker. And because of that, he seems to be unwilling to tell them no. All of this begs the question, is being speaker so great? Especially when members of your own party seem to humiliate you on a daily basis? I'm just wondering. Because from my vantage point, the man third in line for the presidency has found himself hostage, basically, to a group of people who have no desire for him to succeed and no desire for the institution of Congress to work. None of this is about different approaches to governing or policy views. They literally want to shut down the government. It's about ceasing the role of government altogether. That is the end goal. Mr. Speaker, when you ask what point your conference is trying to make, the answer is pretty clear. Their agenda is dysfunction. That's the whole point. Joining me now is the House Speaker Emerita Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi of California. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. It's great to see you. It's great to see you. Congratulations on your new time slot. Uh, Thank and you. It's a wonderful show. And come over anytime. No, my pleasure <laughs> to do so. Thanks. I want to start, Speaker Pelosi, you have been in Congress for more than three decades, two, yeah. of, the, two of those decades in leadership. Yeah. Have you ever seen the House this dysfunctional? Well, it's pretty dysfunctional, but the, all three of the shutdowns we have had have been under Republican speakers. And the last one, the biggest, longest and biggest in history, was under Republican speaker and President, uh, President Trump, who said, I take ownership of the shutdown. Mm -hmm. And now he's encouraging this uh, uh, Republican Congress to shut down government. It costs the economies tens of billions of dollars. It says to our men and women in uniform who are in the military or in uh, federal law enforcement, you're not going to get paid. It says to 7 million women and children in our country who depend on food assistance, you're not going to be eating. It, the list goes on and on in terms of what government does. And uh, so, it, again, this is nothing new to them. However, right now, with all that is going on, all the challenges that our country faces, it is particularly irresponsible. It's, it's like a game. Uh, yeah. You have been through many of these before, yeah. as you said, under Republican leadership. All under Republican speakers, yes. Do, do you think, I mean, there's five days left. Do you think there's a scenario where 
Speaker McCarthy can avoid a shutdown. Well, I hope so, because of all the bad things that are out there and what they say and do, a shutdown is a very bad thing mm -hmm. for the country. They made an agreement when we had the discussion with the president. They had an agreement about the lifting the debt ceiling. They came to terms on a budget number. And that was an agreement. Mm -hmm. And now they're walking away from the agreement. So not only is it uh, a bad idea in terms of our, our country, it's a bad idea about not keeping your word. Now, there is a chance the Senate could advance a stripped-down continuing resolution uh, that would keep the government funded in the short term. Everybody's looking for solutions yes, here. Right. Is that something that could potentially avert a shutdown in the House? What do you think of that option? Well, I don't know. I haven't seen it. It's just new. Uh, but it is indicative of the old slogan that we always use in the House, 99 senators are not enough. <laughs> they have had bipartisan agreement, it appeared, uh, in the Senate about doing their own continued resolution and sending it over. It has its parliamentary challenges, but nonetheless. And now they say because Rand Paul might uh, object, they can't do that. One, 99 senators are not enough. One senator holding up over 500 uh, appointment uh, commission mm -hmm. uh, promotions and the rest in the military. It's just not right. But anyway, to take it back to this, it depends on what it is. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, we're not— just there to vote for anything mm -hmm. on the Democratic side. And so we'll see where we can find our common ground. And we have a responsibility to try to do that. The, uh, there's another— you know, It just is up to our, our leader, of course. Jeffries, and we take our lead from him. Well, the other, another option is a discharge petition, right, where a handful of Republicans, not that many, could join with Democrats. Is yeah. that something that's under discussion, too, to avert this? Well, a, a discharge petition is an option. However, in order for it to even— be considered, you have to have a 30-day period mm. where it rests there. Yeah. And in 30 days, government would be shut down. So it, it's a, a longer-term thing. You, it won't work unless we have something to keep government open past the end of the fiscal year, which is September 30th. Now, the other event that's, of course, happening this week is the House Oversight Committee will hold its first hearing on the Biden impeachment, which they have not outlined a purpose no. for. Um, it's clear what they're trying to do here, at least to me. They're trying to kind of muddy the waters, make President Biden seem corrupt. How do Democrats avoid that or push back on that or prevent that from being an issue? Well, the fact is it, they have no goods. You know, they've been for months and months and months trying to make some kind of a, a charge. The, I don't think they'll ever bring it to the floor. They, don't, they won't have the votes. Mm -hmm. There are members in districts that— President Biden won. Oh, not that they're so fond of President Biden, but they, uh, these voters will say that's just not the right way to go. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody was on my case in 2007 when we, we got the majority, and they wanted us to impeach President Bush mm -hmm. for the, the war in Iraq, the misrepresentations going in, departing from Afghanistan too soon, all of that. But you, if you have a difference of opinion, you just can't be impeaching, impeaching. On the other hand, this is a fake distraction, as you said. But I, they don't even have the courage to bring it to the floor. I don't think the speaker has to worry about that. I mean, you've been the speaker before. Yeah. Uh, looking at all of the events of this week, what, what do you think the history books will say about Kevin McCarthy's role as speaker? Well, it remains to be seen. He, he hasn't had even a full year, much less a full term. But I do think it's important for people to know what the position is. It is the only legislative position mentioned 
in the uh, Constitution of the United States. Mm -hmm. And by the way, it's second in line to president. President? Yes. The yes. vice president. Is so it's number two. Yes. So it's a highly um, um, responsible position. And it has awesome power if you decide to use it for the public good, building consensus within the Congress uh, to take to go forward for sustainability. And that's why I keep saying one thing he could do is to take back the Republican Party. It's a great party. It's done great things mm -hmm. for our country. Great leadership over time. How, don't let it be turned into a cult, to a thug, in my view. And this is what is happening. This man is telling them, unless you get everything, nobody gets everything, unless you get everything, shut government down. That should be a testimony itself to the speakership of anybody to be taking guidance like that from the outside. Several House Democrats, along with New Jersey's Governor Phil Murphy, have all called on Senator Menendez to resign. Do you think he should resign? I respect their position that they are taking, and the charges are uh, formidable. And if, in fact, we're going to say that if you're indicted, you should resign, we have a situation in the House, uh, as you know from mm -hmm. the state of New York, uh, that that would hold uh, to. Uh, but right now, sadly, because of the challenges that we face, because the skepticism that exists in our country about governance, about this Republican Party that doesn't believe in governance, doesn't believe in science, so wants to take down everything in order to give tax breaks to the wealthiest, we've got to stay focused on that. And for that reason, it'd probably be a good idea if he did resign. Do you, uh, this weekend on, uh, on his failed social media site, Donald Trump openly mused at the execution of Joint Chiefs Chairman Mark Milley. This was quite shocking to me. What was your reaction to that? My reaction is not so much to him, but to the people who support him. I respect the differences of opinion that exist in our, our society, and it's from the beginning of our country. That's what a democracy is about. People have different views. They debate them. Uh, you put it before the public. They make a decision. You go forward. But to engage in language like that uh, should be something that would, would eliminate somebody as a, as a prospect for any public office. General Milley, patriot in our country, was very courageous in the military, on the battlefield, and in the public arena in the White House. And uh, I'm, I'm saddened to hear that a former president would say that. Just another argument why he should never have been in the White House and should never be there again. Twice impeached, once defeated. How many times indicted? Counts. Yeah. <laughs> Speaker Pelosi, thank you for your service, thank for you. always speaking out and telling the truth to everyone. It was such a pleasure to have you here uh, this evening with us. It's my pleasure to be with you. Congratulations again. Thank you so much. Coming up, did Donald Trump commit a felony today at a gun shop in South Carolina? Andrew Weissman seems to think he might have, and he's coming up next. Plus, Rachel Maddow joins me to preview her big interview with the January 6th committee's star witness, Cassidy Hutchinson. And later, I'll debunk the ridiculous idea that Trump is a champion for both you unions and blue collar workers. We're just getting started this hour, so stay with us. 
Former President Donald Trump is facing 91 indictment charges, yet he remains the Republican frontrunner. On MSNBC's podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump, veteran prosecutors Andrew Weissman and Mary McCord break down the biggest legal developments and how they could alter the election. Never had a president who engaged in this kind of conduct who's running for office. He is using the criminal cases for his own campaigning. Search for Prosecuting Donald Trump wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Tuesday. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win. Today, Fulton County Judge Scott McAfee ordered that the identity of jurors and potential jurors in the Georgia election interference case be kept secret until the end of the trial. That means that any video, photographs, or even drawings of the jurors would be barred, and that the jurors will only be identified by number in any filings and in open court. That order comes as we await a decision from the judge presiding over the federal election interference case, Judge Tanya Chutkin on whether or not she will grant special counsel Jack Smith's request for a limited gag order against Donald Trump that could come tonight anytime. Let's be clear about why we are seeing these orders and requests. Donald Trump has been furiously attacking everyone involved in the cases against him. And even since Jack Smith filed that order, he's still attacking them. He and his allies have attacked the investigations as election interference. He has repeatedly called Jack Smith deranged and a thug. He has baselessly called Judge Chutkin highly partisan, as well as very biased and unfair. And a few days ago, he suggested that his former top military advisor, General Mark Milley, who has spoken with prosecutors, should be executed for treasonous acts. Let's just pause there for a moment. His former military advisor, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, the president, the former president of the United States was suggesting he should be executed for treason. And well, many Trump makes these public makes these public attacks, many of them, threats of violence have spiked. It, there's a connection. The top prosecutors in the four criminal cases against Donald Trump now require round the clock protection. A Texas woman was arrested just last month for threatening to kill Judge Chutkin if Trump is not reelected. And the purported identities and addresses of Georgia grand jury members have circulated on pro-Trump message boards. It's not hard to see the cause and effect here. Stoking anger has often been a key part of Donald Trump's strategy. And we now know very well what the consequences can be. Joining me now is my friend, Legal Eagle, unofficial counsel, Andrew Weissman. He's also the former general counsel at the FBI and a former senior member on special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation. So the judge in Fulton County ordered today that no identifying information of jurors and prospective jurors shall be disclosed. That seems fairly obvious given the threats here. But how uncommon or common is that? In a high-profile case, it is fairly common because it doesn't really need to be triggered by the defendant himself or herself. In other words, in any high-profile case, you're going to be concerned about interference, about press interference, about anybody mm-hmm. contacting jurors. Here, though, there's an additional reason for the, exactly for what you said, which is you're concerned about, remarkably, the former leader of the free world. This is a step that was taken in, by Judge Kaplan in the E. Jean Carroll 
um, the assault, sexual assault and rape case. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's fairly common. One thing that I'm still concerned about is that although he ordered, the judge ordered that this be sort of anonymized and we wouldn't find out the identities, it doesn't mean that the defendant Donald Trump and his counsel won't know. And so you're still assuming that Donald Trump will obey the law. And that, as we know from four indictments, is a questionable assumption. What happens if he releases their names? I mean, that's a crazy question to ask. But are there even consequences built into the system? For anyone else, yes. Um, But, you know, I think there's probably just a natural reluctance here to... Um, jail somebody pending trial. But, you know, for Paul Manafort, for instance, when he uh, coached two witnesses to lie, he was put in jail by a D.C. judge. It is the norm. Sam Bankman freed uh, in, in the Southern District of New York for financial crimes, um, so much less serious crimes in terms of the import on democracy, is in jail pending, pending his trial. So we're also waiting uh, for Trump, the Trump team's response to the special counsel's uh, gag order request. It's supposed to come tonight. We'll see. Right. Talk about the stakes of this back and forth, given Trump's behavior, because as a non-lawyer, I'm sitting here watching him make these threats about Chairman Milley and thinking, how is this not a big factor? Is it a big factor? Yeah. So let's just remember the, let's, the context we're in. There is a motion before one of four judges who have the criminal cases of Donald Trump, there is a motion pending by the government saying, do something, judge. You've got to restrict in some ways what he is saying about witnesses and jurors and judges and their families. You have to do something. While that motion is pending, as you said, we're waiting for the, the um, defense brief tonight. He has done a number of things. He has made these statements about the former chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I mean, again, it's unfathomable that you're sitting here having that conversation. Um, He has been on air today about possessing a firearm. Well, you know, you and I were on air together when uh, in the D.C. case, the magistrate judge said, you know what the most important thing is, Mr. Trump, when you are out on bail, do not commit another crime. Well, it is a crime for somebody who is charged with a felony, just charged with a felony, to receive a gun. Um, and he is, there are pictures on Twitter of him holding the gun. Does he need a receipt? We don't even know. His campaign came out and said he didn't purchase it, but... But that's not, the law is not that you can't buy a gun. The law is 922 to be a nerd. <laughs> Nine, that's why I'm here. a safe place, Andrew. Safe <laughs> exactly. place for nerds. 922N. Um, is that you cannot receive a gun that has traveled in interstate commerce. That just means that it's traveled across state lines. A Glock has traveled across state lines because they're either made overseas or they're made in Georgia, but they're not made in South Carolina. So even not purchasing it, he could have violated. Exactly. And that happens That happens a lot. There, there are other parts of the, the statute that apply to people who are convicted and they can't possess a gun. So um, the, the issue here is not that he would be charged with that separate offense. It's that while this motion is pending, what Judge Chutkin will have in front of her mm. is not just the Milley statements, but somebody who has sort of flagrantly um, boasted about doing something. So to me, he is really daring the court to do something. It's like a child, except it's much more serious because it's somebody who's out on bail on 91 felony counts. 
So while we wait for it, because the next step, we get we get Trump's team, uh, their response to the protective order, then Jack Smith's team can respond, and right. then we're waiting for the judge. Exactly. So when we're waiting for the judge, that's the most important part probably here. Yes. <laughs> Just, yes. Is it kind of a yes or no to the protective order? Does she potentially lay out what the consequences are? What are we expecting or waiting for? So um, the brief from the government, the reply brief is due on the 30th of September, and then the judge can rule at any point. The, the most draconian thing that she could do is she could put him in jail. I do not expect that she will do that. But she could do, for instance, what Amy Berman Jackson did with Roger Stone, which was that she brought him in, she had a hearing, and at the end of which she had all these prohibitions on what he could do in social media and what he could say. Um, there would be nothing wrong with saying to somebody who is out on bail, you know what you can't do? Do not mention witnesses. Do not mention judges, jurors, prosecutors, and their families, mm -hmm. because I know this sounds ridiculous, but you know what? You can run for president without harassing and threatening witnesses and jurors and judges. Yes, you don't get to live by a different set of rules. I think it's exactly. fair to say. Andrew exactly. Weissman, it is always a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me here on set in Washington. I really appreciate it. Uh, coming up, we are counting down to the first live interview with the star witness of the January 6th committee. Rachel Maddow joins me with a preview of her conversation with Cassidy Hutchinson. That's coming up next. There's a passage from a forthcoming biography on Senator Mitt Romney that I just have not been able to get out of my head. It was the fall of 2019, and the world had just learned about a phone call in which Donald Trump pressured Ukraine's president to dig up dirt on Joe Biden. As he had done many times before and has done many times since, Romney broke with his party. He criticized Trump. He called the scheme wrong and appalling. It was. And he sparked some rage tweeting by the former president. And the passage I can't stop thinking about is Romney's recollection of a conversation he had around that time with Mitch McConnell. You're lucky, McConnell told him. You can say the things that we all think. You're in a position to say things about him that we all agree with but can't say. Of course, when McConnell said can't say, what he really meant was won't say. They won't speak out because of the backlash. They won't speak out because of the attacks on social media. They won't speak up because, God forbid, they could get primaried. They're worse things, by the way. Romney said he started to field so many comments like the one he heard from McConnell that he developed kind of a go-to response. There are worse things than losing elections. Take it from somebody who knows. Well, those Republicans that Mitt Romney is talking about, the ones who refuse to say the things that need to be said, could learn a thing or two from 27-year-old Cassidy Hutchinson, the former aide to Mark Meadows who provided some of the most revealing and damning testimony to the House January 6th committee. I was in the vicinity of a conversation where I overheard the president say something to the effect of, you know, I, I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing mags away. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here. Mr. Cipollone said something to the effect of, please make sure we don't go up to the Capitol, Cassidy. Keep in touch with me. We're going to get charged with every crime imaginable if we make that movement happen. It's not like that testimony didn't come at a steep personal cost to Cassidy Hutchinson, but it was important for the American people to hear. Well, Cassidy Hutchinson is telling her whole story in a book that comes out tomorrow. Here's how she describes the personal stakes of her decision to testify before the January 6th committee. Quote, I can't shake the feeling that I'm violating a code. I pride myself on my discretion and trustworthiness as much as my work ethic. I'm troubled by the feeling that I'm about to betray friends and former colleagues because a higher 
loyalty to the country demands it, a higher loyalty. See, to some people, there are worse things than career setbacks. There are worse things than losing elections. There are worse things than being the subject of mean tweets. Unfortunately, inside the modern-day Republican Party, people like that are very much exceptions to the rule. Joining me now is my friend and colleague, Rachel Maddow. She's going to interview Cassidy Hutchinson in the next hour in what will be Cassidy's first live interview since she testified before the House January 6th committee. Rachel, I'm so excited to watch this interview, and, and I just want to know, I, I'm, I'm ready for it. I'm going to put my feet up, take my heels off. Why do you think it's important that Cassidy Hutchinson is speaking out now? Well, first of all, Jen, let me say thank you. Um, for saying that you are looking forward to it and that you're so ready for it. I am not ready for it. I need the next 23 <laughs> minutes to continue to prepare. You know me well enough now in yes. this building that I'm always sprinting at the very last second. So like, I haven't even like done the hairspray thing. Like I'm not, yeah. I'm not ready. <laughs> Writing. <laughs> I need more moments. Um, listen, I mean, Cassidy Hutchinson decided to cross the Rubicon um, when she decided that she needed to live with herself, when she decided that she could continue to protect the president. She had a lawyer who was who came to her through Trump world and who was being paid for. She didn't know how, but it wasn't her. Mm. And she didn't have any money to pay for a lawyer of her own choosing who might not have the same sort of perceived conflicts. She realized that she could do that, but she wanted to pass what she calls the mirror test, being able to look mm -hmm. herself in the eye for the rest of her life. And as a very young woman confronting that sort of moral dilemma, she knew that she's likely looking at a very long life ahead in which she's going to have to live with decisions that she's making, you know, by the age of 25. Um, yeah. So she crossed that Rubicon, and now I think she wants people to understand how she did it and why she did it. Um, but I can't, I mean, I'll ask her about this, but I can't help but think that she is also telling this story to let other people know that they can be brave too. Mm. That you don't need to be in a safe seat in Utah with like Mitt Romney is, right? You don't mm -hmm. need to be protected by a billion dollars in personal assets like Mitt Romney is. In fact, she was completely broke at the time that she was giving yeah. that testimony. She hadn't paid her, she hadn't paid her rent in months. On the, on the day that she sat there in that room. She had no family assets, working class kid. You know, she didn't have any cushion at all, but she did the right thing. And I think she wants America to know that too, so other people maybe can see themselves in her. I hope people listen and kind of walk across that bridge. Now, now one part of her book, when I saw this, I was thinking, I wonder what Rachel thinks of this. So now I have you before I let you go to do your last preparing. <laughs> she writes about how Alexander Butterfield is an inspiration to her. Now, you all know, but for anyone who doesn't know, Butterfield is a former Nixon aide who testified at the Watergate hearings about the extensive taping system in the White House, a pretty important historic figure. You are a student, a podcaster, a broadcaster of historical parallels. <laughs> What did you make of that comparison? It was interesting to me that she's so self-aware um, about the kind of the fact that she needed her own um, storyteller. She needed her own, not necessarily role model, but she needed to believe, she needed to see, or at least needed to find out if there was somebody else in the world who'd had something like an equivalent job to hers, who had confronted a similar moral quandary, moral and, and practical quandary. And in fact, Alexander Butterfield, who told the world that the Nixon White House had a taping system in it, he came forward with that shocking mm -hmm. revelation in the Watergate hearings. He had essentially exactly the same job that she did in the White House, basically being the White House chief of staff's 
chief of staff. It's a very important but very low-profile job. You have to be trusted. You have to be loyal and perceived as loyal to have that kind of a job. It's not somebody who ever wants to be in the spotlight who has a job like that, but who nevertheless, despite all those loyalties and despite that kind of a don't-look-at-me personality, uh, felt this sort of patriotic imperative to do the right thing. And in his story, she found basically a a spine-stiffening um, uh, tale about yeah. American patriotism. And she uh, and Alexander Butterfield um, became a, a, a real life role model to her, not just his story. And that's that's part of what I'm going to talk to her about tonight as well. Rachel Maddow, it's almost gives you a little deja vu. See what I did there? Uh, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for joining. Can't wait to watch again with my heels off. Um, but we'll let you go prepare. Thank you, Jen. Much appreciated. Up next, President Biden and Donald Trump will head to Michigan this week to talk to striking members of the auto workers union. I've got a story for you after the break about Trump's broken promises to the people he's going to try and con one more time. We're back after a quick break. Former President Donald Trump is facing 91 indictment charges, yet he remains the Republican frontrunner. On MSNBC's podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump, veteran prosecutors Andrew Weissman and Mary McCord break down the biggest legal developments and how they could alter the election. Never had a president who engaged in this kind of conduct who's running for office. He is using the criminal cases for his own campaigning. Search for Prosecuting Donald Trump wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Tuesday. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win. now that Donald Trump is a bit of a charlatan, the kind of door-to-door salesman who shows up on your porch, hawking a vacuum that will change your life. And then you get the vacuum and it either never shows up or maybe you don't get the vacuum or self-combust when you plug it in. Well, this week, the traveling salesman is headed to Michigan, where he will speak to UAW members in an effort to continue perpetuating this myth that he is the champion of blue-collar America. Not to be forgotten, President Biden is going to Michigan tomorrow. Trump is going to try to overshadow that. The Republican debate is also on Wednesday. Trump is also going to try to overshadow that. And let's face it, a lot of people will buy what he's selling because he will put on a show, just like the reality TV host that he is. But the thing is, reality TV is not actually reality. And it's important to remember that Trump will say anything, literally anything, to convince these men and women in Michigan and in Pennsylvania and in Ohio that he is fighting for their interests. Remember this ruse has worked well for him before. Back in 2016, remember he convinced a whole lot of those workers that he alone, Trump alone, was the person who could bring manufacturing jobs back to forgotten pockets of the country. I am going to be the greatest jobs president that God ever created. Remember that. I will bring back jobs. You can't bring back jobs. Well, I am going to bring back our jobs to Ohio and Pennsylvania and New York and Michigan and all of America. It will be a victory for jobs, jobs, jobs. We're going to bring our companies back. If I'm elected, you won't lose one plant, 
You'll have plants coming into this country. You're going to have jobs again. You won't lose one plant. I promise you. It was that message you just heard that helped Trump pit basically an inside straight across the Midwest and win the 2016 election. Remember, he won Michigan by just over 10,000 votes, Wisconsin by roughly 20,000, and Pennsylvania by about 40,000. And in each of those close, crucial states, Trump outperformed Hillary Clinton with white voters without a college degree by a margin of two to one. His empty promises to this group of voters helped literally propel him to the White House. So in this moment, ahead of what we're going to see this week, I thought that the story of one GM plant in Lordstown, Ohio, might be kind of useful. This plant was once sprawling, both in size, spanning more than 100 football fields, and in its impact on the community. For over half a century, the GM plant produced millions of vehicles, employed thousands of people in the community, and served as basically the beating heart of that town. Well, in 2017, still wearing the faint glow of victory, Trump spoke just 15 miles down the road from that sprawling GM plant to a group of residents in Youngstown in a part of Ohio that Barack Obama won by 20 points and Trump flipped in 2016. And when he spoke to them, he promised them that manufacturing jobs were coming back. I'll tell you what, I rode through your beautiful roads coming up from the airport, and I was, I was looking at some of those big, once incredible job-producing factories, and my wife, Melania, said, What happened? I said, those jobs have left Ohio. They're all coming back. They're all coming back. Coming back. Don't move. Don't sell your house. Don't sell your house. Don't move. Don't sell your house. He told people to stay put. He told them he had their backs. And those people listened to him. They trusted him. But by 2019, that GM plant in Lordstown shut down. Thousands of jobs were lost and an entire community was shattered. A local restaurant owner said he hosted more than 100 going away parties at his pub by the plant, watching lifelong friends gather for a final round of drinks, a final photo. A mother whose husband was transferred to a plant three hours away called the closure traumatizing. Her daughter called it the death of life as we know it. A husband and a father who was transferred four hours away from his family in Lordstown said, I miss sleeping in my bed, holding my wife, holding my kids, hugging my family. So what did Donald Trump do next? Did he work on an economic package to rebuild the community? Nope. Most of his policies actually would have hurt the community. He proposed cutting funding for a number of programs that would have actually helped people in communities like Lordstown. Did he show an ounce of empathy or remorse for the impact of this factory shutting down? I think you unfortunately know the answer to that one. What followed was simply the usual Trumpy scapegoating. He attacked Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown, saying, quote, Ohio wasn't properly represented by their Democrat senator. He attacked the CEO, writing very disappointed with General Motors and their CEO, Mary Barra, for closing plants. He attacked Lordstown local UAW president, saying, quote, he ought to get his act together and produce. So first came the empty promises and then came the empty excuses. But Trump didn't actually do anything to save the jobs he said he'd save. To be the champion of these communities, he promised he'd be. He didn't do anything to help that community. The UAW director of that plant, the same guy that Donald Trump attacked back in 2019 when it shut down, felt compelled to speak out ahead of Trump's trip to Michigan coming up this week. He said, quote, 
the guy came to my community and flat out lied to everybody. Banks were closing, schools were shutting down. I wrote the guy two letters and he didn't even reply. That sure sounds a lot like a warning to the people Trump will try to sell his busted vacuum cleaners to this time around. He will tell you anything you want to hear to get you to vote for him. It may be four years later, and yes, he may have a way of creating temporary visual moments, but he was a charlatan then, and he is a charlatan now. Michigan State Senator Mallory McMorrow rose to national prominence by calling out Republican lies in her state. She joins me live from Detroit, coming up next. Welcome back. President Biden on Tuesday, Donald Trump on Wednesday. It's a big week for the state of Michigan. And joining me now is Michigan State Senator Mallory McMorrow. So, Mallory, we, we all know you because you came on the scene kind of calling out people who were spreading disinformation. I want to know what we're going to, as we look to what Donald Trump is going to do in Michigan this week and try to present himself as the candidate for workers, how do we combat that? We have to call it out as a straight up lie, Jen. Donald Trump is coming to Michigan to go to a non-union supplier. And what he's going to do is blame the EV transition. This is absolutely ridiculous. He's pitting workers against workers. And I got to tell you, Chinese automakers are salivating at the opportunity that America is going to flinch on EVs so that they can come in and dominate the market. And if he's successful, he destroys the American auto industry. You're there on the ground in Michigan. You've stopped by the picket line. Tell us about what you've been seeing and hearing on the ground. Number one, workers are frustrated. They see that CEO pay has skyrocketed. They see some of the CEO is making 20, close to $30 million a year. These are workers who might be starting at $15 an hour. They made a ton of concessions during the recession. They want their fair share. They want a 40% raise. And there is some concern about EVs. But when I talk to workers, they say the cars are too expensive right now. But more than anything else, we want assurances that these will be our jobs. And Donald Trump has already said blatantly that if he is president, these jobs are going to China. Yeah, he's been pretty clear about that. President Biden is, of course, joining the picket line tomorrow. Not a common thing for president to do. Michigan Congresswoman Debbie Dingell said President Biden should not intervene in the negotiations. What, what do you think? First of all, this is historic. This will be the first sitting president in United States history to actually come to a picket line. And I think anybody running for president should come to the ground in Michigan and listen to workers, not go mm -hmm. to a non-union supplier and try to pit people against people for their own gain. Come and listen. Listen to people, shake their hand, show up, bring some coffee and donuts. That is how you show solidarity. Should he negotiate with them or he should stay out of it? He should listen to them. You know, the president should not come here to negotiate with workers on a picket line. But I got to tell you, visiting the picket line and hearing people's stories. I talked to one worker who is a third generation UAW member whose grandfather participated in the sit down strikes. He is now working alongside his son. That's an experience you're not going to get sitting in the White House, sitting in our offices. Mm -hmm. Showing up and listening is something incredibly powerful and something only one candidate running for president does well. Very quickly, the UAW hasn't endorsed President Biden yet. What do you think they need to hear to take that step? They need to see him show up. This week is going to be a great step towards that getting done. 
Mallory McMorrow, two gingers is better than one ginger, as I like to say. It's always a pleasure seeing you. Thank you for joining me tonight. <laughs> that, that does it for me tonight. A reminder that you can watch the show on Sundays at 12 p.m. Eastern. We'll be back here next Monday night at 8. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place every day, each morning in your inbox with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Understand today's news. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com.